Welcome back to the program. There's no question that we're in the heart of basketball playoff season. Today, almost as much attention gets focused on star coaches as on star players. After all, who but stars can manage the star egos of NBA players today? However, one man gets these players to pay attention. His name is Idan Ravine. He's been called the Hoops Whisperer because of his impact on NBA players. He's a trainer and so much more, and his success says an awful lot about what it takes to succeed in any endeavor today. It is my pleasure to welcome Idan Ravine here to talk about his book, The Hoops Whisperer. Idan, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Great to have you here. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved in this business of, of being a trainer to these NBA players as somebody that doesn't have a real deep basketball history. Um, you know what? The five-second answer is that I found something I love to do, and I was stubborn enough to believe I could do it. Uh, the longer answer is that I fell in love with, with the game when I was a kid. Um, it spoke to me in ways that nothing ever did and hasn't since. Um, you know, I grew up in an observant Jewish home to immigrant parents who devoted their whole lives to teaching Jewish education. So you can imagine that basketball and resources and athletics weren't really available to me, and it's not something my, my family would prioritize. So I just taught myself the game in whatever way I could. So, for example, um, I would shovel the snow from my driveway to leave patches of ice so I could try to drip the ball off this uneven surface. I would keep my hands out in the cold so that my fingers would feel so numb so that I would try to dribble the ball when I can even feel the sensation in my fingers. My whole goal was to try to master the unreasonable and teach myself the game in whatever way I could. So fast forward a few years, I ended up becoming a really good player. Um, and my only dream was to play college basketball. But when you grow up in a family like mine, there's only things that only certain things that you're supposed to do when you grow up. You can become a rabbi, an accountant, an engineer, a doctor, or a lawyer. So I checked the lawyer box, and I ended up becoming a lawyer. But I was a really, really unhappy lawyer. And, you know, when you grow up religious, all you know how to do is pray. So I would remember I would sit by my desk, close my hands, and just pray God would send a lightning bolt down from the skies with a, all these yellow post-its attached to it telling me how I was going to live my life and how I could find happiness. But there was never any lightning bolts. So to escape from this miserable law from life, I just started volunteering at a YMCA with kids. It was 12-year-old boys, and you know, it resonated, the practices resonated with them. And eventually it became older boys and better players and better players and better players and eventually professional players and eventually NBA players. And then eventually I just ended up quitting law. So it's something that just did not happen overnight. I didn't become you know, good at what I do you know, with the snap of my fingers. It's something I've devoted a lifetime to. Did you consider using your law degree and, and sort of the path that you were supposed to take in life to become part of a front office, either for the league or a team somewhere? Uh, you know, I did. I think, you know, there's a very conventional part about who I am and growing up the way I do and you become a lawyer and thinking, okay, well, how do I transition? I know I love basketball and I have, and I'm a lawyer and I'm a pretty smart guy. Well, maybe I can, you know, work for a front office or a team. So I did what any sensible person would do. I would sit in front of my computer, I would type resumes and cover letters, and I would send them out. And I'm thinking, okay, it's only going to be a matter of weeks before I get a phone call. They have to recognize that I'm smart, I'm different, I could add value. And I would wait, and I would wait, and I would wait some more, and nothing. So what I would do, I would run back to my computer and double-check that I had all the contact information correctly. Because I had my cell phone by my side the whole time, but it wasn't ringing. And I thought, <laughs> this is strange. You know, what's, what's going on? They have to call me. And I would wait some more, and I would wait some more. And then all of a sudden, I got a couple letters, and I was so excited. I ripped them open, and all I saw was standard rejection letters from the Human Resources Department. You know, you know how they go, thank you so much for the, your interest in the position. We're not hiring in the moment. We'll keep your resume on file. And I got a bunch of those. 
And I was thinking to myself, God, this is crazy. You know, and like, I so wanted the, the NBA teams to recognize me, to give me a chance, to acknowledge me. It was almost like this, as if I was on a deserted island. I had written SOS in the sand, and I had thrown my arms up in the air, hoping that the rescue plane would just come in, 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 uh, and rescue me from my terrible law job and this unhappy life. But there was never a plane. There was never an SOS answer. It was nothing. And I just realized that, you know what, I'm tired of waiting for to start my life. I'm tired of trying to knock on doors. Instead, I'm just going to build my own little house, no matter how small it would be. And I just started spending more time with each individual player and just trying to do the best I could each time. And one player led to another player, led to a better player, led to a better player. And eventually, all these years later, I feel incredibly blessed I've worked with you know most of the Olympic team and NBA All-Stars. And the big change for you, really, some would argue the big break, came back in 1999 with Steve Francis. Yeah, I mean, it was just, um, you know, I had worked with some of his friends, and then he just popped into the gym. And, again, I didn't really know what I was doing back then. I just was kind of working on feel and intuition. And um, somehow it resonated with him. But, you know, looking back, I realized that a lot of it necessarily wasn't the drill. I mean, people are so focused on the drill. But I think maybe it was also what I represented. Maybe it was a fresh voice. Maybe it was an optimism. Maybe it was an innocence. Maybe it was just a pure love for the game on why we connected. Talk about how you think your love for the game, your really deep appreciation for it, your understanding of it, your connection with it. Talk a little bit about how that really helps you not just connect with the players, but really connect with what it is that you do. Um, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of times people talk, you know, when I meet kids or I meet players, people talk about this idea of dreams, right? And to me, the idea of being able to frame a dream is kind of a, is a luxury because a lot of people don't know what they dream for or, or they want, so they just don't do anything. To me, I prefer to call it faith, right? Faith is, while dream is like you're shooting for a star, faith is the idea that you're going to touch one even if it's not the one you originally planned on. And for me with these guys, I think it's like part of this connection is that we love something and we have a lot of faith in something. And it's part of why I think I've been able to connect with them is because it's that little gray area on the Venn diagram is what we have in common. How difficult has it been with some NBA players, given their egos and really the attention that they get in, in the sports world today? Uh, you know what's interesting? I've never had an issue with that. I find that when you create, to me, the gym is a sanctuary, right? Like, it's not about cell phones and it's not about friends coming to the gym and it's not about anything other than we're here to do what we love. It's a place where mistakes are encouraged all the time. It's a place where the only laughter that's permitted is because you're having fun, not based on criticism. So because it's become the sanctuary and a place where like, people can be themselves, I don't have any ego. I don't get any ego. There doesn't exist around me. These guys are completely transparent and vulnerable, and that's why I think I've been able to forge this type of friendships and relationships and see them excel the way they have. Talk a little bit about this difference between the mental part of the game and the physical part of the game, because one of the things that you talk about is really the physical part and getting a lot of these guys to get out of their physical comfort zone and really improve there, even more than over-focusing on the mental side of the game. All right, let me try to give a better example to help you know, the audience understand. So people say mental is very important in everything you do, and I agree. But you need to master certain physical things before you can focus on the mental thing. So imagine if like, I, I want to write, and I have a lot of amazing ideas. But before I can have those amazing ideas, I need to learn how to type. I need to learn word processing. I need to learn how to use a computer. 
And it's the idea of first you have to master certain physical things before the mental th- component becomes really um, entrenched and becomes really important in the process. So these guys, they've mastered this physical ability, and the NBA is filled with incredibly physically talented people. And then the next step to me is mastering the mental part. What do you do with these guys that's different than what they're used to? Oh, you know what the truth is? I don't really know what other people do, and I don't always know what other people have done with them. What I try to do is create a situation which is based on discomfort and variation. So if guys have been doing the same thing for a long time, if there's anything they'll tell me, well, then we stop that because I try to create change because when you have change, you can kind of create different levels of performance. And I try to bring in different things to a workout that don't necessarily belong together. Um, it's sort of, so for example, you know, years ago, I shot a commercial for Nike Jordan brand with Carmelo Anthony. And in the commercial, you see Carmelo dribbling a ball with one hand while catching a tennis ball with the other while moving in different directions. So the idea is like, well, why would a tennis ball and a basketball belong in the same place? And people would think, oh, because it helps develop eye-hand coordination. And my response would be, no, not at all. Carmelo Anthony is one of the best athletes in the world. At nine years old, he had amazing hand-eye coordination. The purpose of that drill is to create a sensory overload. So when you're playing in a game and you're dribbling a ball at the NBA level, there's so many things going on. You have a coach who's directing you to run a play. You have aggressive and long defenders trying to steal the ball from you. You have teammates who are screaming for the ball. You have a shot clock. You have cute cheerleaders on the sideline. You have TV analysts. You have fans talking crap in the background. You have all these things going on that you can't focus on the ball anymore. So the idea when Melo's dripping a ball with one hand and I'm tossing in a tennis ball and I'm ordering to move in different directions at the same time, it's forcing him to think about everything else other than the ball. So the idea is really to make a lot of it almost automatic. Uh, Yes, exactly. But at the same time, um, subconsciously understand how to react. So it's being able to rely on intuition, to me, which is important, right? And the subconscious guides the intuition. How much of this is scalable? Are these skills you can teach other trainers to teach other players, or is this something in your unique bond with these players? Um, I don't know. I've never really tried to think about this in like a very sort of business standpoint in terms of like scalability and models and all that. Um, I tried to leave all that out when I decided to leave law and just pursue things that I love to do and not things in terms of dollars and cents. Um, you know, people ask me, well, you know, I play, you know, guys will say, well, I play in the NBA or I coach and I can do what you do. And I say, really? Okay, that's, that's great. Well, then what I want you to do is I want you to get um, Carmelo Anthony on the phone. I want you to return your text message. I want him to, you to meet him in the gym. I want you to go through drills. I want you to see him run through a wall. And then I want him to pay you at the end. So it's, to me, it's like, it's a, it's a, it is a rocket science because it's the ability to kind of connect with these guys, burrow your way into the life, earn their trust, and then to have them um, better their game. So I don't necessarily know if it's scalable, but I do think that there's a lot of life skills you can learn from this. Are these skills that are applicable only at the highest level in the NBA, or are these skills that you can even start using to teach kids that are playing high school and college basketball? I think it's not even basketball specific. I think these are life lessons, right? Because at the end of the day, I think part of the message of this book is a, is a message of faith. So when I grew up in, in a religious environment, I associated faith with religion. But as I got older, I started realizing that faith could be defined more broadly. Faith meant faith in myself, 
Faith means I would find my purpose. Faith means I would find direction. Faith means that heaven was not abandoning you just because it wasn't answering your prayers right away. And it's a message I think that can be conveyed to kids or parents or anyone that the idea that faith has to drive a lot of decisions in life. I think it's also lessons that you can for kids and adults about courage, right? It's one thing to sit in homeroom class when you're six years old and your teacher says, what do you want to be when you grow up? And little Carmelo Anthony says, I want to be an NBA player. And the room is, explodes in laughter. Well, it's a lot easier to say I want to be a fireman, an astronaut, a lawyer, a doctor, than it is to say an NBA player. So the book to me also represented a message of courage that everyone should have. Right? And then also to me the message of the greater are always trying to find ways to become the greatest. And there's this idea of these guys are not just comfortable. They're always seeking for another way to get better. So that could be a CEO of a company. That could be the valedictorian of a class. That could be a radio personality thinking, you know what, how do I make this even a better show? Like we're always in the pursuit of better. Mm-hmm. The fact that so many of these guys are huge celebrities in their own right, does that make it more difficult for you to get into their head sometimes? No, I don't know if it's about getting into their head. I think it's more about getting into their schedule, right? <laughs> because their, their, their lives are so filled with so much responsibility. Goodness gracious. I mean, people think they just come home and just hang out and play video games. No, I mean, from the morning to when they rest their head on their pillow, their days are full. So it's just more about I want to make sure that I'm always available at any time for them because that's what's important, that consistency in our, in, you know, in our schedule. Talk a little bit about the changes you've seen in some of the players that you've trained and the way you've seen their game improve. Oh, that's, that's a great question. Um, I'm trying to think of here's a good example. Uh, I think I would look at Carmelo, right? I think... In the beginning, when Carmelo came out, he was kind of like a, I hate to use the reference to gun, but like in that kind of the old Western standpoint, like the gunslinger, right? Shooting a lot, just taking a lot of responsibility. Um, but then as, as I realized that as Melo's his games matured, I think he's learning this idea of trust, right? That there's other guys in the court who are also really, really, really good, and I'm going to find them as well, and I'm going to rely on them as well. And that's part of this sort of cohesive team that I think a lot of times players are looking for. Um, the game is a tough game, so I think what ends up players end up realizing is that, you know, how do I get to the basket without taking so many too much contact? How do I become more streamlined? How do I become more efficient? How do I become more of a leader? How do I delegate responsibility better? It's like the game changes um, on a physical level and also more like on a team level as well. You mentioned maturity a few minutes ago. How much mm-hmm. is the maturity of the player a real asset in, in getting them to understand what it is you do and how you could help them? Because certainly we've seen with so many of these star players, we've watched many of them mature a little bit over time. Oh, that's, that's a good one. I, I'm like, I think sometimes there's different layers to my message, right? So a guy can come in, or like I work with great WNBA players as well, or a woman can come in and they can go through the work and they say, oh my God, that just felt really good. I felt challenged. That was tough. But I think as you become um, a more seasoned player, a more mature, you'll see that there's different layers to a session. There's different layers to the workout. There's different purposes to the message. And I just encourage my players to sort of read between the lines and understand that it's not just about a drill. It's about 
a commitment in your life. It's not just about becoming a better player, it's becoming a better person. It's not just about a tweet, it's about the, the tweet that you send that will resonate with four million kids around the world. It's just kind of understanding that what you do doesn't live in a vacuum. How do NBA coaches view what you do? Um, honestly, I don't know and I don't really care. <laughs> um, it doesn't really matter to me what anyone else thinks. My sole purpose is to help players with something that they, you know, which, which, which runs second in their life behind God, family, and their health, and that's their game. And I treat that with reverence, and my only priority and my only focus is them and getting, helping them get better. Are there players that, that want you to help them that you, you simply don't have time for? I mean, does, this, does your schedule become too crowded sometimes? Yeah, it does. I mean, it's difficult sometimes. Like, I would love to have, help everybody, but I, I often can't. So um, it becomes a juggling uh, act for me. And, um, you know, sometimes guys are really, really, really um, very supportive. And you know, if I tell them I'm somewhere, they'll fly out and they'll come see me and they'll work around my schedule. So the guys have been great in that respect. Um, like I say, sometimes I hope I could touch more people. But right now I just I'm kind of confined to about 20, 25 guys I devote most of my attention to. You talk about the life lessons in this. Are many of these skills and the kind of things you teach, the concept, of how you teach, is it applicable to many other sports as well, or is there something indigenous in basketball that that really takes particular advantage of what you're teaching? No, I think it, like I said, I think it applies to all sport, and I think it applies to life as well. I mean, at the end of the day, right, we're all hopefully in pursuit of better. So the idea is that you constantly have to try to challenge yourself in whichever way that is. But challenging yourself doesn't always mean while you're doing that particular sport. It's like a level of discipline and that you have to kind of apply throughout the day, right? So, for example, you know, like training, like making Carmelo Anthony a better player just doesn't happen in the confines of the basketball court, right? It happens all day long. It's his, the choices that he makes, the food that he picks, the, the sleep that he gets. The, I mean, it's just, it's uh, constantly have to be in pursuit of that. So I think, it's, I think there's skills that translate across sport and life. How has the game of basketball changed in the time that you've been looking at it from a kid fascinated by it to, to what we see in the NBA today? Uh, I think it's become more sophisticated. So these days when I hear people say, oh, you know, basketball's simple, basketball's easy, keep it simple, I'm thinking, hmm, it just doesn't make any sense to me, right? The game is incredibly complex. I mean, there's bodies of analytics that have been created. There's technology that monitors physiology that's been created. There are training, there's new training methodologies, there's nutrition methodologies, there's new science associated with it, there's new, like, it's such a, it's become such a complicated business and sport that uh, that's what's impressed me, is that it's become incredibly refined, right? The end like, 15 years ago, there was just the internet. Now we think about all the 100 million things that are associated with the internet. Is analytics important in basketball today as it is in some other sports? Um... Well, I do think it's important, but I don't know if it's as important as sports that are kind of have this start, like a start and stop to it. Mm -hmm, you know, I mm -hmm. look at football and baseball where players are very much scripted. Um, I can see where analytics plays a bigger role, but because basketball can be so fluid and there's so many times where you sort of break away from particular plays and structure, that I don't know if it's as important, but I certainly understand it's um, why it needs to be there. I think it helps in the decision-making. Yeah, that fluidness gives it its purity in many respects, really goes to the heart of some of the things that you're teaching and talking about. Yeah, I think the game to me has always been creative and expressive. It's part of one of the reasons I fell in love with it, right? Because it doesn't take a lot of money to play it, and all it takes is a ball, a rim, and a basket. 
um, and there's like a certain freedom associated with the movement it's in the play and I think you know sometimes having an algorithm associated with that doesn't necessarily work but I do understand its place and I do understand that um, it helps in creating uh, a more informed decision. Idan Ravine, his book is The Hoops Whisperer, On the Court and Inside the Heads of Basketball's Best Players. Idan, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much. I had a terrific time. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.